Are you hungry this morning? Are you hungry this morning? I don't care how big of a breakfast you had, right? Stacks of pancakes, hash browns, eggs, croissants, pastries, donuts, cereal. I don't know. I don't care how big of a breakfast you had this morning. In one way or another, I know that all of us are hungry. We've come hungry, each one. No, I'm not talking about food insecurity, though that remains a real concern in our day and age, in our community even. There are hungers deeper than a longing for food. Do you believe that? There are hungers deeper than a longing for food. Hungers that hurt, not physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Hungers that drive us, often in desperation, to find some kind of satisfaction. Here are two questions to consider very carefully. Please take a minute and think about these. Two questions to consider and be honest with yourself. Question number one. For what are you hungry this morning? For what are you hungry this morning? And question number two. With what have you been feeding yourself in light of that hunger? With what have you been feeding yourself in light of that hunger? Question number one, for what are you hungry this morning? And question number two, with what have you been feeding yourself in light of that hunger? If you think broadly, sociologically, historically just about the human race, you can identify hungers all throughout our history, all throughout our society today. And if you think about it, you know that we often do not have a good track record when it comes to finding satisfaction for our hungers. Keep that in mind. So much of the modern world sells itself to us daily, hourly, as a solution to these deeper hungers. Things like possessions and pleasure. Things like romance, recreation, power, prestige. All of these things are offered as supposedly satisfying options. Often these so-called solutions seem filling at first. They seem to satisfy, but in the end, the hunger remains. Sometimes the hunger deepens because of our attempts. So what is the solution for such hungers? Where is satisfaction to be found? Let's bring our questions and our hungers to God's word this morning. Uh, We're going to continue this morning through the Gospel of John, continuing that study in the Gospel of John. 
And as we do that, we find ourselves in chapter 6. Chapter 6. So turn there if you haven't already. John chapter 6. This morning, we're going to look together at verses 1 through 15. That's the, that's the bite we're going to take this morning. I think that's a doable portion. I think there's a good theme there to that set of verses. So let me break this passage down into a few parts as we read through it. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Listen to how John sets the scene for his readers here. In verse, starting in verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was the name of a city on the coast that was named after one of the Roman emperors right around the time of Jesus. So we know that this is written much, much later when the sea itself began to be called the Sea of Tiberias. Just a little footnote there. So Jesus went away to the other side of the sea and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, the miracles. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So... You may remember, let's stop there. You may remember that in the previous chapter, chapter 5, Jesus had been in Jerusalem for an unnamed Jewish feast. An unnamed Jewish feast. Verse 1 here of chapter 6 simply assumes that Jesus has gone home after the feast. He's returned to Galilee. That is the northern part of Israel. That's why it talks about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The, the point of reference for us as the reader is Capernaum. That's where Jesus would have been spending most of his time. Uh, we know that from the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, as a reminder, John seems to understand that most of his readers, many of his readers, are familiar with the material that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke today. He's not trying to do a fourth version of that. He's trying to complement that. So he assumes that his readers understand that Jesus was mainly based out of Capernaum and that Jesus was performing many miracles on the sick. Doesn't, it doesn't take far into Mark 1, for example, to read that Jesus was healing the sick, that he was casting out demons. Right? There's many examples of that as you go along. So, verse 2 reveals that Jesus is being followed in that region by a large crowd. This is the first time I believe in the Gospel of John that we've got one of these kind of classic gospel pictures of Jesus traveling with large crowds with him. Why are they following him? Well, as we just mentioned, and as John mentions here, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So another reminder, John is supplementing the other Gospels. John is simply highlighting seven signs in his Gospel. He's chosen seven signs in this Gospel, but he knows his readers are aware of the many other passages in Matthew and Mark and Luke that describe how Jesus was healing the sick. Whether it be Peter's mother-in-law with a fever, whether it be a leper or a paralytic. 
the blind and the deaf, right? Jesus had touched so many, was touching so many lives during his ministry in this miraculous way. So Jesus has undoubtedly gotten people's attention through these, through these amazing miracles. They are coming after him. They are following him. We're also told in verse 4 when this chapter takes place. Did you see that? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Not only is it springtime, but we know that from the indicator, the time indicator there, that it's been one full year since Jesus cleared the temple courts. That's recorded in John chapter 2. Do you remember? He cleared the temple courts of the money changers who were operating there. So we know it's been one year since that took place. And of course, he was there confronted by the religious leaders for the very first time. Uh, They weren't opposed to him necessarily, but they were asking questions of him. They wanted to understand who he was, his ministry, why he he would do something like this. So Acts chapter 2, I'm sorry, John chapter 2. Now, in verse 4 here, is John simply playing helpful historian by by, uh, indicating the date? Right? Is he just is he basically putting together a historical textbook? No, 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 no. I don't think that's why he's including this indication, this time indicator about the Passover. Since Jesus and his listeners will go on and talk in this chapter about post-Passover happenings, post-Passover topics, post-Exodus topics, themes, ideas. I think John sees significance in terms of the timing of this passage, of what's happening here. We'll talk more about this in a future lesson. So if John is setting the scene in verses 1 through 4 for us, where are we, who are we with, the time, right? He's laid it all out for us. If he's, if he's setting the scene... Verses 5 through 13 describe how that scene actually played out. Now, if you will acknowledge your hungers this morning. If you will acknowledge those hungers, then you will hear something truly wonderful in this account. This is what we read beginning in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, why is he asking Philip? Well, John chapter 1 verse 44 tells us Philip was from Bethsaida, which is probably the closest town to where they're at right now. So it makes sense, right? He's asking Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But John gives an even more important reason here. He said this to test Philip, right? He said this to test him for he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He's testing Philip. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. One denarii is a day's wage for any average laborer. 
200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough, Jesus, for each of these people, each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. So, because you could sit down comfortably in that place, right? So much grass. So, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So the test, the test that Jesus gives to Philip is both practical and spiritual, isn't it? Practical and spiritual. But Philip can only think in terms of the practical. Rabbi, even if we had enough money, which we don't, those funds would only provide a snack, a morsel for this huge crowd. In light of what had been revealed about his identity, revealed to all those who traveled with him, In light of what had been revealed, Jesus was challenging Philip to think in new ways. To think outside the box because Jesus was so clearly outside the box. He pressed him. He challenged him. Sadly, Philip failed the tests. But Andrew and the little boy here bring something more useful than Philip's pessimism. Verse 9. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Though Andrew, he knows, he understands this meager amount is like a drop in the bucket in terms of feeding thousands of people, he still brings it to Jesus, doesn't he? He doesn't dismiss it right away and say, ah, get out of here, kid. Scram, kid. We don't want you around. That's not enough for anybody, let alone you. No, 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 no. He's not. He's doubtful, but he's not totally dismissive. And as we go on to read wonderfully, miraculously, these offerings are enough. How? Because Jesus is with them. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because he walked with us. Because the disciples had beheld his glory. As John said in chapter 1. That's how it was possible. And look at the emphasis, brothers and sisters. Friends, look at the emphasis in verses 11 through 13. How much bread and fish did Jesus distribute here? Verse 11. As much as they wanted. How much did they eat? Verse 12. 
they had eaten their fill. How much was left over? Verse 13. They filled 12 baskets with leftover bread. Wow. Not only does Jesus do something Philip could not even conceive of, he makes sure that everyone gets far more than the little bit that Philip suggested as remotely possible yet improbable. You see, Jesus is pushing his disciples. He's wanting them to think big because of his bigness of what he can do. Not only could Jesus transform water into wine, as we saw with the first sign, the first of Jesus' signs. But as we read here with this fourth sign, he could also transform a little into a lot. He could transform a little into a lot. If the wedding guests in Cana enjoyed the best wine they ever had, then thousands of people here in John 6 were stuffed because of the word. They were stuffed because of the word through whom all things were made. He was feeding them. He who was with God at the beginning. He because of whom nothing that exists would come into existence unless he had been God's agent. Now, before we think together about the importance of that sign, this sign here in John 6, we can't overlook the people's reaction to this miracle. Look at their reaction, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, word would have spread quickly through the crowd that something miraculous had happened. There were no carts following Jesus loaded with supplies, were there? There wasn't a caravan of vendors for century food trucks, right? They weren't rolling in and circling up. They weren't coming in to take care of the people. Jesus and his apostles did not have some kind of secret storehouse or bunker at the top of the hill that they were pulling stuff out of. No, five loaves, two fishes. That was it. That was it. So what did the people conclude? This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that's an Old Testament reference. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 and 18. Because in those verses, it's where God, through Moses, promised to send the people another prophet like Moses. God would raise up another prophet like Moses. Moses, stress the idea of like Moses there. Like Moses. Remember, it was through Moses that God accomplished two things in the book of Exodus. He accomplished wonders and liberation. He accomplished wonders and liberation. So in light of that fact... That this could be the prophet like Moses. It is not surprising what John records in verse 15. 
it says that Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. That is, a liberator from the Romans. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So think about the tension here. Through this fourth sign, the people have recognized something about the heavenly identity of Jesus. And yet, sadly, sadly, this recognition inspires nothing but earthly ambitions. You see that? They've recognized something about the heavenly identity of Jesus, and yet what has it inspired? Nothing but earthly ambitions. As Jesus would later tell Pilate, though, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. And so he withdraws from the crowd even higher onto the mountain. Now, please remember what I said earlier. There are hungers deeper than a longing for food. There are hungers that hurt, not physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Hungers that drive us often in desperation to find some kind of satisfaction. I believe it was these hungers, these deeper hungers that God spoke about to his people hundreds of years before Jesus. He declared in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 3, these words, listen to the heart of God in this passage. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, says God. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Isn't that beautiful? That invitation. You don't need money. Stop wasting your efforts on that which will not satisfy you. Come to me, Yahweh says. Come to me and eat and be full. Delight yourself that your soul may live, right? You're going to find covenant promises because of David. Come to me. So how does this Old Testament invitation connect with our New Testament passage this morning? 
through what is revealed here about the identity of Jesus Christ. That's how it connects. Through what is revealed here about the identity of Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Brothers and sisters, friends, I believe God is speaking to us, to you, through this story this morning. For all who recognize both the hungers themselves and the futility of our attempts to satisfy them, John reveals that Jesus Christ can miraculously and thoroughly satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ can miraculously and thoroughly satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. Do you believe that to be true? If you believe it up here, do you embrace it down here? Do you live it out from here each day that this is true? That Jesus Christ can miraculously and thoroughly satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. The words of Jesus later in this chapter, we'll get to those in in coming lessons. They confirm that Jesus wanted to use physical hunger to talk about spiritual hunger. He wanted to talk about, he wanted to use real bread to talk about spiritual bread. That was his goal here. And so, as I asked you at the outset this morning to honestly and carefully consider two questions. For what are you hungry this morning? And with what have you been feeding yourself in light of that hunger? Think with me about the fact that Jesus Christ brings true hope for the hungry. True hope for us. Let's break this statement down, the one that you had on the screen just a minute ago. Let's break that statement down. Jesus Christ can miraculously and thoroughly satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. So clearly John reveals first that Jesus miraculously satisfies. Jesus miraculously satisfies your struggles, your disappointment, your weariness with worldly options to satisfy your hunger. It may tempt you. Those things may tempt you to believe that Jesus is just next on the list. That Jesus is simply one more earthly solution who will probably eventually let you down as well. But God wants you to understand this morning through the testimony of this passage that the satisfaction that Jesus makes possible is different. It is different from self-help books, right? It is different from the other religions of the world. It is different from what the media offers us. It is different from the substances out there through which we try to find comfort and consolation, at least escape. 
It is different from the workaholism. It is different from the things that we throw ourselves into, the the good things in this life that we exalt beyond their place and say, all my hopes are pinned on this. All my hopes are pinned on you. And try to get something from someone or something that was never designed to give us that satisfaction. Jesus miraculously satisfies. What he offers is otherworldly. Not worldly. Otherworldly. No matter the person or circumstance, it is always miraculous because it's always God intervening in a life. God intervening in an exceptional way. Is that how you would tell others your story of grace? Would you say that my story is a story of God intervening in an exceptional way? That should be the testimony of every true believer. God intervened in my life in an exceptional exceptional way. God wants us to understand the otherworldliness of what Jesus Christ does in satisfying our hunger. It should be, it can be, this miraculous satisfaction that Jesus Christ offers us. It's not just one of many options out there. It is the the option that God has given from heaven to earth, from eternity into time. John also reveals in this passage, number two, that Jesus thoroughly satisfies Jesus thoroughly satisfies. So many references to the abundance Jesus provided here, right? There's just so many references in verses 11 through 13. Everyone had their fill. There was so much left over. Is that an accident that Jesus did what he did in the way that he provided? No, he was making a point that if you keep coming back to him, he has enough. He has more. He has still more to come. More for you. That well is never, ever, ever going to run dry. He has every single thing that you need. He wants to fill you to overflowing. He wants to bless you abundantly. He didn't come into this world with us to bring us a spiritual snack. To hold us over until we die. No, as Jesus goes on to teach in John chapter 10 verse 10. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He's not cheap. He's not stingy. Abundantly. Yes, it is that good. Yes, he can Fill those empty places inside you. Will we always experience that fullness? No. No. Why is that? I can tell you why it isn't. It isn't because he withholds anything. That's not the reason. He does not withhold. The reason that we do not always experience that fullness is because we're always learning to walk in that fullness. It's a process. 
those who come unfairly to Christ with their list of demands and say, if I am truly to be saved and truly to enjoy this eternal life that you talk about, it's going to mean these things in my life. This will change. This will be gone. This will be new. This will be different. When someone brings a list of demands like that to Jesus, they've already set themselves up for failure. Because they're not coming on Jesus' terms. They're not coming in light of the word of God that says, this is a process. This is a refiner's fire. This is a work of the farmer in the vineyard pruning. Snipping here, snipping there. A process of transformation. It does take time, doesn't it? It doesn't mean God is withholding anything from you. But it's a process. We're learning to walk in this fullness day by day. Jesus does thoroughly satisfy, though. That's the encouragement for us. Finally, we also see here, number three, that Jesus inclusively satisfies. Jesus inclusively satisfies. What does that mean? It means that no one is excluded No one is excluded. As we've seen here in the Gospel of John, Jesus has miraculously healed individuals. We've seen that a number of times, right? From a distance or beginning of chapter 5, the the paralytic who walked. We've also seen, we've also seen in this passage that Jesus met the needs of an entire wedding banquet, didn't he? But in case... Just in case there were any doubts in the readers, John's readers' minds, or in our minds this morning, just in case there were any doubts in terms of his limitations, John wants to put those to rest. Are there limitations to Jesus? No. Look at this. Thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus hungry And each and every one of them left spiritually stuffed. That's our Savior. Every single one came. Didn't matter how many thousands of people there were. And they all left spiritually stuffed. Isn't that encouraging to you? God will never run out. Please hear me. God will never run out. He is never too busy for you. You are not insignificant to him. He doesn't have better things to do. He welcomes everyone. Amen. He welcomes hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions. He welcomes to himself. And each of them, when they come in faith, they leave full. Do you know that fullness this morning? If you don't, be encouraged. It's waiting for you. It's there for you. The power and abundance of Jesus is more than sufficient for us. But think about this. 
in addition to revealing the breadth and depth of God's provision for us in Jesus, this passage also reminds us that our hungers are, in fact, deeply affected by our hardness. Our hungers are deeply affected by our hardness of hearts. Our hardness of heart, the hardness of heart that reveals our sinfulness before God, our rebelliousness before God, our, our, our setting ourselves up as rivals to God. That's what's revealed here. And, and our hungers are affected by that. Remember what we saw in the final verse of this passage. Like this crowd here in John 6, we as sinners too often respond with earthly ambitions when God offers his heavenly provision. Earthly ambitions in light of his heavenly provision. Each of us can become like those people the Apostle Paul described in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, where he said those people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And by that he means earthly gain. There couldn't be a clearer rebuke of the prosperity preachers out there the health and wealth gospel. Coming to Christ is not a means of earthly gain. That's not what God has offered us. Now, this temptation, this tendency in us can be very subtle. So be on guard, brothers and sisters. Be on guard. To put it simply, what is this temptation? To put it simply, it's the temptation of being fed by Jesus without being led by Jesus. It's the temptation of being fed by Jesus without being led by Jesus. There are plenty of preachers out there, so-called preachers, who will talk about what Jesus has for you, what he wants to give you. And you can come and you can receive and you can get and you can feel good about yourself. You can be saved, right? You can be full. You can be right. You can be reconciled. You can do all of these things and you leave with some kind of boost in self-esteem. But sadly, those same preachers are not calling you like the Jesus they claim to represent. They are not calling you to take up your cross and follow Christ. But we have to, don't we? We have to take up our cross and follow Christ. Because if anyone wants to come after him, he or she must deny themselves first. And take up the cross and then follow him. You see, we don't come to Jesus to feel good about ourselves and then ignore what he says. Or use our faith to empower our own dreams and ambitions. There's far too much of that going on out there in so-called Christendom today. No, we come to gain what Christ can offer us, not earthly gain. It is spiritual satisfaction that we receive, on our, not on our terms, but on God's terms. But as we've seen already from the John's Gospel 
these signs, we already know that these signs were not ultimately about feeding stomachs. These signs were given so they could open eyes. That's the purpose of the signs. And that's still true today. Was it wrong for these people to desire leadership and liberation? No, it was not wrong. But it was unconscionable for the people of God, God's people, to rush into this kind of plan, verse 15, a plan built on their tactics and their timing, not God's. It wasn't excusable. No matter how they were oppressed, who they were under, they should have known better. Their tactics, their timing. Uh, Aren't all of us guilty of this though? We need to see ourselves in this crowd. We need to understand that they're doing what we would have done or we do in different ways. Mercifully, though, we finish with good news this morning, as we always hope to do. Mercifully, God sent his son to die for our warped motives. He sent his son to die for our foolish choices. Shockingly, in his grace, He prepared a banquet of eternal life for hungry rubbles like us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. His son died and rose again to fill you up. To satisfy you. To meet your needs to the glory of God. Amen? That's why he came. Jesus Christ can miraculously and thoroughly satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. And so will you bring your hungers to him this morning? Will you bring them? Will you ask for eyes to see and courage to confess those hungers? Will you be vigilant in terms of earthly ambitions that want to twist and warp. Let's go together to God with these very prayers. Let's ask Him as those who have been satisfied through Christ. Would you pray with me, brothers and sisters?